Thank you, Sagar, uh, and welcome everybody also to this morning's Sunday service, and for those of you in online as well. This morning's topic, as Brahmacharya Sagar introduced, is ego, friend or foe. And I think it's a very, very instructive uh, topic. Of course, every week, is, you could say that of every week, but particularly I, I gravitate to this one because there's lots of lessons here for me, a lot of lessons for all of us. And I'd like to begin with the reading. Uh, I thought I'd read from the Bhagavad Gita this morning rather than whispers because it, it, you might say it gives a little bit of an opening to what we're going to be speaking about today. And this is from the third chapter, three stanzas from the third chapter where Krishna is saying, that man, however, succeeds supremely, O Arjuna, who disciplines his senses by an effort of mind, who remains inwardly non-attached, and who engages his organs of activity in God-reminding activities. Perform those actions your duty dictates, for action is better than Inaction. Without action, indeed, even the act of maintaining life in this body would not be possible. Actions performed for selfish gains are karmically binding. Therefore, O son of Kunti, that is to say, of dispassion, perform your duty without attachment in a spirit of religious self-offering. Now, I think we all realize we live in an age that's extremely restless. It's an age that I think would, can be characterized as a very egoic age. And I think we live in a country <laughs> that epitomizes the age in which we live in. It, now, that's not to say that there's no country that's probably not egoic to some degree, because that's the, that's the temperament, you might say, of this age. But America, you know, is what is, America as well. Look at me, you know, I scored the goal and, you know, and, and it's very, you know, self-aggrandizing, selfish in many ways, uh, drawing attention to oneself, me, 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 me. And I think we could, we could, we know this is, this is uh, a characteristic, I think, to some degree of our country. I know, uh, you know, having lived overseas, you see Americans come to visit in India and, sort of say, ah, Americans, <laughs> you know, sometimes. Not that they're necessarily egoic. I don't mean to say it that way. But there is a, some sort of a expansive, bigger, you know, a bigness to the aura, you might say. And sometimes it is egoic. And, but not necessarily always in a bad, bad way. But it's there. And I think we know that this age, you could say that one of the challenges of this age that we've gone into, if we were to characterize it as Dwapara Yuga, an age of energy, one of the challenges of this age is to deal with this very element of ego. And I think all of us on the spiritual path, we know we speak in, in terms of overcoming obstacles. And isn't it always up there in the front of us, overcoming the ego, and actually we, we speak about it. To be able to overcome the ego, we have to go beyond it. You could say we have to transcend it. 
and it's very much current. But I, when I speak about this topic, and I said I like to speak about this topic to some degree, is particularly in relationship to our path, the path of self-realization, the path that has been expressed by our guru, Paramahansa Yogananda. Because if you, and I've had enough experience now in my 50 plus years of being on the spiritual path, I've exposed myself to many other traditions. Which tradition, spiritually speaking, addresses this so straight on? Ego. You don't hear that much of, oh, transcending ego. No, of course, the world at large doesn't, what are you talking about? Now, Christianity doesn't really speak about transcending ego. It purifies ego, maybe, get good qualities, but transcendence of the ego. And the, the idea of speaking about the ego on the spiritual path, typically, even in the yogic teachings, other traditions, they talk about overcoming the ego. May even say, you know, and I think anybody who knows better would not say to, to get rid of that, destroy that ego. You know, suppress the ego might even be said. And, but no, none of them really go into it very deeply except for this path. Master addressed it very directly. Ego is the soul identified with the body, so clear. So very clear, the soul identified with body, personality, or as Swami would, would say, we're just, ego is just a bundle of self-identities that we're sloughing off. And, but nevertheless, the title, ego, friend, or foe, probably in the spiritual tradition, leans toward the foe rather than the friend. <laughs> Look at the... Now, we've come out of a different age. We've come out of this age of Kali, the very materialistic age. And, of course, naturally, in the spiritual traditions, the ego very much was looked upon as the foe. We must maybe even suppress that ego. Those ego tendencies, they're, they're negative, holding us back. Thinking of ourselves, thinking, uh, 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 you know, that ego, ego tendencies that we all have. But I think... Really, when we look at it, when we look back, there is that side. There's no doubt, there is that side. But I think there's a mistake as much as been, has been made about this. It's not so much ego. Ego is just a part of our consciousness, you might say. It's egotism that really is the obstacle and that needs to be overcome. Those, those ego tendencies that pull the energy down into the body, as Master would say. And this is what we're trying to overcome. But yet, I think, as I said, this topic is very pertinent for us. Because Master did address this, it's, very, it's at the core of the ego transcendence, the core of our teachings, not only our, all teachings, really, but Master emphasized it. But it's also specifically, I think, important for us as devotees here in the Ananda Sangha on this path, because it's something that was illustrated and consciously spoken about by the founder here of Ananda Sangha, Swami Kriyananda. And to really understand Swamiji, to understand Ananda, our approach, you might say, to these teachings of Master through Swamiji, 
we need to understand this issue about ego because the lessons that I'm going to share here were illustrated by Swamiji. And to understand those is to understand ego, the proper position of ego in our spiritual path. I was reading just recently one of Swami's books, uh, uh, A Place Called Ananda. And he gives an interesting story there. And one of the, the a chapter, you might say, in his life, where in, I believe it would have been 1958, he was, uh, he, he was uh, asked to go to India along with Dayamata to, you know, take a visit. It was, uh, you might say, uh, the official visit, at the first one back to India by representatives of the organization after Paramahansa Yogananda had passed on. But before Swamiji went to India, he was to meet Daya and some of the other nuns that had accompanied her in India. But before that, he went on a lecture tour of Australia, New Zealand, uh, Indonesia. And he had gone with the intention of looking into the Ananda centers because after all, prior to that, he had been in charge of Ananda centers, or Ananda centers, <laughs> hardly self-realization fellowship centers. Uh, he had been in charge of the center uh, organization. And so he went to Australia, New Zealand and Australia, both. And checking in and doing as normally would, giving satsangs with the groups there. But he was then invited to give a public lecture. Now, I had always thought Swamiji had done many public lectures prior to that. But the implication is, is that wasn't true. He gave many large uh, lectures, but usually to devotees. This was a public lecture to non-devotees, the public in general. And some, one of the center leaders there, center organizers, invited him to do this and said, oh, we can get a big audience. And so Swami was sort of thought about it. He says, well, is this the right thing to do? And he said, well, yeah, yes, let's do this. And then he says, we need to promote this. And Swami said, the lesson he learned here, was he learned at that point, the art of self-promotion. Now, right off the bat, <laughs> you can see he was hesitant. Self-promotion. He was a monk in SRF, which doesn't do self-promotion. It does, it, you know, even to this day, not very much. But he was invited. He said, well, it seemed like the right thing to do. And so he acquiesced. And they promoted. Swami Kriyananda uh, is here representing the teachings and so on and so forth his picture and, and so forth. He said it went tremendously, big crowd, many hundreds, five, six, seven hundred people came and people were introduced to master's teaching. He then went up, you know, did the same thing and went to Indonesia, probably it was Bali, I guess it was Bali. And again, many hundreds of people came and then he was gonna, then from there he went to uh, India, and he mentioned something, and he wondered if he should tell <laughs> Dayamata about what he had been doing, because this was an out of the norm to be able to self-promote like that. And but he had he meditated on. He says, "I'm reaching more all these people," and he went to India, and he didn't. He said, "I better I I thought it would better just to let it lie and not bring it up." 
And so it, he did. But then after Dai, of course, the first year there, and the next year it was organized, all the functions were organized around Dayamata, but then she went back and he was then in India, remaining in India, in a very sleepy SRF environment in Calcutta. And he was, if we knew Swamiji at all, he was not sleepy. <laughs> he was on fire to get it, to get it out. And he had talent to do it. He had the energy to do it. He had the will to do it. But nobody else seemed to be very enthusiastic about it. And it caused a certain dynamic. And naturally, a person like that, who's highly talented, comes into your territory, starts wanting to do all these great things. Might it not engender a little bit of jealousy? when they're especially when they're a lot better at doing this than you ever is gonna be. And that's what happened. People began to see he wanted to go out and wanted to spread the teachings. And he discovered something from his lessons of going through Australia and through New Zealand that if you want to get the message out, you have to promote it. <laughs> My gosh, a novel thought. <laughs> promote master's teachings and that you're the you're putting it out there what the audience wants to know well who's doing this it's not just some anonymous monk someone it's this person and people were thrilled in india he said crowds were coming and i've heard him speak about this beyond that book he said thousands would come he says then they were enthralled he doesn't say this in the book, but he said they were enthralled by this novel concept of an American yogi, Swami, coming to India, and it was novel, and people came. And he was able to gather an audience for what purpose? Not to, you know, look at me, you know, look, it wasn't that. It was saying, I'm here to introduce you to something fantastic something that can change your life. And thousands came. Unfortunately, by doing that, he planted the seeds of his own separation from self-realization fellowship. The jealousy in India, the notes going back to Mother Center. This guy, he's a supreme egotist. He's separating, he wants to separate the work. He wants to call attention to himself. You know, what do you do if, if somebody is taller than you and you want to, you know, you're kind of always looking up, you cut their head off, right? That's the, you know, that makes yourself feel taller. Well, that's what happened. And, and this sort of attitude, it's in all societies. But let me believe, believe me, it's in India as well. And you know, making the other one small, the rivalry between spiritual paths, it's a, it's a sad thing, but it's there. And so you found this, and that sowed the seeds of his ultimate separation. But he wanted to share Master's work. And he, as I said here, and he who engages his organs of activity in God-reminding activities, he wanted to get it out. And he realized that he was an instrument for that. He needed to be an instrument. He was put there to be an instrument. He was not there, put there to you know, sleep in Doug Shinnesvar. It wasn't that. So he engaged himself. 
But I think, you know, listening to Swami after all those years tell these stories over and over again, I think he suspected that, you know, that he was on a little bit of shaky ground there because he hints at that even he didn't tell right at the beginning because he knew that the cultures were such of the culture that he had been brought up in in, in you know, monastic tradition in America and the situation he found himself there in India, which was a very different culture and then needed what he had to offer. And so the lesson here, you could even take it back to the, are you going to hide your talent under a rock? No, you don't hide your talent. You use that God-given talent and it multiplies. And that's what Swami did. Now, of course, for all of us, this is dangerous. <laughs> now, it's not just dangerous organizationally with, with Swami. It's dangerous for us, individual. Because I remember Swamiji, and I've said this before, when Swamiji once it was, you know, he would, he would say that three important things of, of the spiritual path to last on the spiritual path and succeed on the spiritual path. And he would give three different things different times. It wasn't always the same three things. But, but the one time he did, he was saying, you gotta have a, you gotta, you gotta uh, have a sadhana. You gotta, it's a, you gotta make the spiritual path a matter of life and death. And, he, and the third one was, which I found interesting on the, at that time, you need to have self-honesty, you see. Because if you don't have self-honesty, you don't see yourself in a very good perspective. And that ego tendency, which can pull us into all sorts of dangerous waters, you know, you start to justify in the wrong way. You have to, to use yourself as an instrument, you have to have a sense of detachment, isn't it so? You have to be able to be outside of that ego a little bit, like Swami in his latter life, he would say, I've come to see Swami Kriyananda as simply something for which I am responsible. He wasn't attached to it, but he wasn't, he wasn't out, I mean, so far outside that he didn't have some responsibility for it, you see, he was. So we're responsible for what we need to do, but we cannot non-act. He says, uh, perform those actions which your duty dictates. Now, if your duty is to represent the teachings of our guru, you got to do that. And you got to use the tools at your disposal. And if you have the talent, you use your talents, whatever way. For action is better than inaction. And without action, indeed, even the act of maintaining life in this body would not be possible. We have to act. We're not going to escape becoming non-egoic by not doing. We have to do, but we have to do in the right spirit. We have to learn to be able to have that introspection, which is, by the way, is one of the niyamas. We have to have that. We have to have that and be able to use that tool. But remember, a tool, it's a double-edged sword. It's a double-edged sword. And, but that's how the spirit, there's no safe way in the spiritual life. I'm gonna be safe on safe ground. There is no safe ground. You're on, a, you're on a razor's edge at all times. You're either getting, you know, the likelihood of falling off is, is high. 
So, and you're always there. So you got to, and so you have to, you have to act, but I don't want to be egoic. Well, act in a positive way that takes you in the direction of overcoming the ego. Use the ego, like you know the old image of use one splinter to get rid of the other splinter and then throw both splinters away. And so we have to use it, but we have to use it wisely while realizing the danger that it imposes on us. But if the choice is between using it and doing nothing, use it and make the mistake. You'll learn something, maybe. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> and because how else? Because the ego is a supreme gift of God. We would not be here. We would not rise above the animal level unless we were given the ego. That's what separates us from the, uh, from the animals because we have that desire of, I want to make something of myself. I want to become rich. I want to become famous. Those don't serve after a while. Well, I'm going to try something else. You know, I'm going to have this and that. I'm going to be the star. That doesn't work. Pretty soon, you start refining it. And little by little by little, you realize none of that, not this, not that. And then, ultimately, it's what brings us to God. It's that gift of, of aspiration, of failing again and again and learning from it. And that's what ultimately allows us to make a gift. But it, remember, it's ultimately the goal is to transcend that ego. You know, the, I always liked, the, I, the, I remember Swamiji saying that Moses was a enlightened master. And the historical Moses was a, was a divine master. But there's the symbolic Moses of the Bible also is a symbol. Moses of the Bible is a symbol also. It's a symbol, and you know, my, Moses leads his people out of the wilderness, across the wilderness, out of bondage, out of slavery. It's Moses who leads them. And what does Moses represent? Moses represents the eagle, leading them out of bondage. And it's the embodied ego, it's the ego leading them out of bondage. And what is the price that Moses pays for some of his mistakes, he can lead them to the promised land, if you know your stories, but he can't go in. You see, he leads them to the promised land, all the Jewish people, but he can't go in. And that's the ego. The ego leads us to the gate, into the gates of the Shushumna, perhaps, into the gates of the inner kingdom, but he has to stay outside. But yet, that's a big task. And that's the task, you might say, of raising this embodied soul up to a level of divinity. So we're, we have to honor that, but it is a sharp-edged tool. And if we don't have that self-honesty to at least realize it and not be presumptuous. Another story that... Uh, I've always taken to heart. I was having a chat with one of the devotees a couple of weeks ago, and this came up, asking for perhaps a little advice. And uh, I look back on my life, and it comes down to this thing of being self-honest. 
And it's the story of Odysseus. I know you all know your Greek classics, but uh, <laughs> also known as Ulysses. But, uh, but Odysseus, he uh, crosses, uh, uh, you know, gets on the bad side of Poseidon. And uh, there was a long story there about the Cyclops, but the, he gets on the bad side. And he's condemned, not to death, but he's condemned to wander. He's, gonna, he's, he's heading home. You see, now there's a lot of symbolism here, which I, you can read into it yourself. He's fought this big battle. He's now trying to head home with his sailors and they're, sea, and they're on the sea and he crosses the gods and he's condemned to have a very difficult journey and a lot of challenges, which he does. He goes on and he has one challenge after the next. It's just endless, it seems, until he finally gets home. But along the way, he goes through a, a certain strait. It's, you know, geographically, it's the strait between uh, Italy and Sicily. That's the, and then in that strait, there lives, uh, there's some spirits there on an island known as the Sirens. And the sirens, you know, the sirens, you know, they, they have this power to be so enchanting that when you go through the straits, the sailors will hear, hear the song of the sirens calling and it drives them mad with desire to jump off the ship and swim to shore. And of course, they end up, they end up marooned there and they end up dying and, being, you know, they, they give up their bodies there, but, and, but they can't resist. So they're going to go through these straits, and Odysseus knows this. Well, what he does is he gets beeswax, and he gets all the sailors, and he says, put this in your ears when we go through. He says, but I want to hear the sirens, because it's so entrancing. And now there's a lot of symbolism. The sirens are, are you know, hidden knowledge, hidden deeper, and so on and so on. But he wants to hear the sirens. And he says, what I want you to do is tie me to the mast. And whatever I say, whatever I demand, you must not let me go. Don't untie me. Tie me to the mast. And so the sailors, you know, obediently, they stop up their ears. They start to go through. The sirens are calling, but Ulysses, Odysseus, is tied to the mast. And he goes practically mad trying to get out. He wants to go. He wants to go. But he won't. They won't. They won't. Until he can't. Until finally they get past. And the sirens recede. And, the, and he's just exhausted. They come. And he's demanding to be untied this whole time. But this, they, they, they don't untie him. So he, then he, of course, uh, he, they, they're they're free of that, and now he's back to his normal self. Well, I think this is a very instructive. This has, been, this has been very instructive to me. Combine that with this niyama of swadhyaya, being extremely honest with yourself, tie yourself to the mast of something in your life. What are we tying ourselves to? And I think in a sense, when, we're in this, when we talk about this, 
It could be ego, which we're dealing with now. It could be self-promotion, which you're dealing with now. I want to be an instrument, but what about if I go too far this way? What about if I go too far that? It could be desires, the sirens. I want to, you know, I kind of want to hear, you know, I kind of like this sort of thing. And you, you know, but now you could take one attitude and say, no, nothing. I'm going to draw, I'm going to do this thing around me and I'm not going to expose myself to anything. And probably if you're a good, good devotee, maybe that's what you do. But there's something in all of us that I want to hear it. I want to know it. I want to, I want to, you know, come uh, And, okay, that's it. I see that in myself. But I think the thing we do, tie yourself to the mast. What does that mean? And what is your mast? I've got Kriya Yoga. I've got discipleship. I've got God. I've got, I've got, I've got a community here to, to help me. I've got, I've got lots of things. I've got lots of two. I've got principles. I, and you tie yourself to those things. And when the waters of your life are rough, that's not the time you're going to make a lot of forward progress outwardly. You know, sometimes you're just going along and life is just great. You know, oh, I'm really going good. How people ask you, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Because tendency, you're in the wind is blowing at your back, your sails are full and you're going. But then you start to hit the shoals or the wind stops and you're becalmed and the rough water begins to come. What do you do? Pull the sails down. Tie yourself to the mast and let the wind blow. Because you know it's going to pass. It's going to pass the rough times. Tie yourself down to something. Don't think that you can face everything in this world. Uh, oh, I'm strong. I can do it. Yeah, we're still here after how many lifetimes? I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> it don't work that way. You know, tie yourself to the mast and tie yourself to guru. That's what I mean. This, I mean this, you know, somewhat literally, somewhat literally, but also, you know, uh, 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 symbolically. And you find that then, then when the rough cotters come. So we have to. So in this whole topic here, it was about the ego. Ego is a temptation. It's, and it's with us at all times. But yet, it's a temptation we have to face and we have to find ways to work with it. And the, type, the thing, couple things I've mentioned already is one is engage yourself in serviceful activity. Work, we gotta work. Why not work in the right way? Work in a way that's gonna free us. I gotta work for myself. Hey, that's okay. Work for yourself, make a million bucks. Do it, but share it with other people. I want to read something, a second reading I have here. This is Master, he wrote. And now, now uh, this is called the social way of reaching God. He gave different ways to reach God. And I remember when I first read this, I'd been on the path maybe once or two years, a couple years, and I, I don't know how I came across it, but I did. And he gives the meditation and the, and the technical way, and then he gives the social way. And I always said the social way. You know, that's sort of the, that's sort of the mm, 
you know, that's not the real way the yogi goes about it. That's meditation and it's technique and pranayama. And he was helping, and I thought that's kind of for the wimps, you know, to, you know, to do that. <laughs> and I come to see 100% flipped. This is the way to God. This is the way for us in this age. This is for us. And he says, every human ego can imagine itself spread out in space, but can feel itself only as the body. So you can imagine yourself, you know, as the yogi transcendental, but you're in this body. You know, it's, it's not a, it, you know, a lot of people, you know, uh, you gotta be honest, where, where are we right now? It is when the ego begins through practical sympathy to feel itself in other bodies that it begins to regain its forgotten omnipresence. Feeling yourself in others. Unlike the short-sighted worldly man, the divine soul works not only for himself as one body, but also for himself as the body of all others. So, you must learn not only to feel hungry or to desire to be prosperous or to wish to be healed or to long for wisdom for yourself in one body, but for yourself in all bodies, in all minds, in all lives, in all souls. It goes on. Hence, the social way of developing cosmic consciousness is to love your family your neighbors, your country, the whole world as yourself. Include the world in your love and call yourself a cosmic citizen. Now implied in this, of course, is serving that world and being an instrument to be able to help that. You are the king and in the kingdom of your love include not only all human beings, but also animals, flowers, the flock of stars pasturing on the long savannas of the blue and all living creatures in your kingdom. Love all men as your brothers. Love all women as your sisters. And love all elderly men and women as your parents. And love all human beings, the black, the brown, the yellow, the red, and all of colored races as your friends and brothers. This is the social way of attaining cosmic consciousness. And this really was the essence of master. And it's so expansive. And it was his energy, his personality was embracive. And this was how Swami was. Now, when he was in SRF, he had those qualities, but they were somehow channeled in a certain way. But then when he was in India, he, seated, he needed to bring a larger domain, a larger perspective. And of course, it ended up in the painful experience of separation. But nevertheless, I came to know him. Many of you had the blessings to come to know him. His very nature was one of embraciveness, of expansiveness, of wanting to appreciate beauty. And anything he appreciated, he'd share that beauty of reaching out to other people. And this is the lesson I think that we take. He said, expand your talents. And then don't leave it there. Share, expand, reach out. And that's what we have to do through our, through our efforts. And this is, I think, the lesson that he gave to all of us is characteristic 
to what Ananda Sangha is about. Be expansive, be loving, be sharing, reach out. Don't be afraid. Just, you know, that to share what you have. Don't just, you know, like that. When something, when your duty calls, you know, there are times when you go within. Yes, be with God, but when you're with your others, be with others, share with others. And this was the message that, and you could say the characteristic of Ananda Sangha, and I think it's, it's that sense of using the ego as a tool for our own salvation, purifying it, yes, purifying it, yes, and ultimately offering it up at the foot of the divine, at the feet of the divine. It's not me, it's you, Lord, till ultimately there's no, there's like Kriyananda said, there's no Kriyananda there anymore. It's just master. It's just master flowing through him because in the act of service, in the act of offering, you forget your little self and you find that your true joy comes in the service of others. Your true joy comes in the sacrifice. Many people don't like the word sacrifice, but sacrifice is joyful if done in the right spirit because it's freeing. To sacrifice a ball and chain is great. It gives us a great sense of freedom. And that's what it means. Ego, friend or foe, it's both. If in the context we want to, we want to you might say, make friends with it, but realize, uh, be careful. But nevertheless, use what needs to happen to tie yourself to the mast so that you keep your eye on the goal. And even when you stray, because you're tied, you're not gonna to stray too far. But in that way, learning your lessons, we grow strong. And ultimately we can throw those chains away. God takes those chains away from us. And our guiding, our guiding principle is the joy that we feel in everything that we do in Master's presence. Be a servant of the Guru, servant of the Master. God bless all of you. and. May you find that joy in your own lives. Om Guru. Are we not like them his own?